is it's all, I think, stewardship and how you choose to serve your community, right? And so the thing about public health that was attractive to me was it wasn't this kind of, let me do um, this experiment on a flatworm because there may be some implications eventually in humans. It was this place where I could see immediately how research and work and science could make an impact. I want to welcome Dr. Christine Crawford. Christine, thank you for being with us. Um, I want to say in advance that you asked us to call you Christine, so we're not going to call you doctor throughout. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm not sure that if you, on the first try in February of 2020, if you asked me, what is epidemiology? I might not get it right on the first try. I, I think I'd get it right after that, but not on the first try. Um, and, uh, and now I've learned quite a bit, um, you know, I've, largely through R. Pietti, who, you know, built the first um, sort of pandemic response plan. I don't know if it was the first RP, but certainly, um, you know, in the 90s, in the Clinton administration had built a, a, a big and effective plan, including warehouses full of um, PPP and, uh, or I'm sorry, PP, PPP is the finance thing. Is it PPE? PPE. PPE and ventilators and, uh, yep, et cetera. Yeah. So it's been a journey. And I was saying to somebody this morning, um, you know, I'm going to guess we're in ballpark ages. Um, and for me, as a 54-year-old, these three months have been the most profound three months of my life. Um, and, you know, it's, it's certainly in, in part impacted by COVID, by business challenges, by life challenges, by family issues, by George Floyd. There's just so much happening at this moment that it that makes it so intense. Um, and, you know, it's not all bad. There's a really powerful mix of hope, fear, challenge, opportunity in the middle of all of this. And, and um, I'm going to do like a one second thing on your bio, which please fill in any blanks. But, um, you know, you have an interesting mix of, um, uh, you know, you're, you're from the South. You're from, uh, are you from Augusta, Georgia, or just across from Augusta, Georgia? Just, so I grew up in Aiken, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, but you're a doctor of science in epidemiology from Harvard, um, and you have a BS in natural sciences. You graduated from Spelman College. And, you know, so you would think, oh, she must be a doctor or whatever. And you did time at the CDC. But then you also became a, uh, you ran a number of franchises for um, McDonald's, which is, um, you know, an American institution of, in so many ways. And you were also very successful in that realm and over time added a number of franchises in your tenure, and are you still doing that, by the way? So no, so I sold. So McDonald's was actually the family business. Um, my mom had been a franchisee for about 15 years when I came and joined her. Um, so it, it's a, a story of family business, but also a second generation woman owned um, family business as well. But we sold about two years ago. And how many did you have at the time? We had seven. Okay. And have you seen, what's the movie called about Ray Kroc? What's that called? What'd you think of that? Tell me what you thought of that. It's interesting. If you read his autobiography, he actually was very transparent about kind of a lot of his um, darkness. Yeah. 
And so it wasn't quite as dark as maybe he actually was. Um, and I think, which just as an aside, I think as Americans, we don't appreciate that, you know, people can do good things and have other things that they wrestle with in the complexity of all of us. We just want a shiny, pretty, happy story. And so I think even the founder showed that, um, you know, happy meals <laughs> may not have come um, or developed in the way that it grew. It did not grow in the way that people thought that it, it would have. Yeah. You know, for me, of any drama I've ever seen scripted, it was the best representation of what a startup is like that I've ever seen. And, and, and you know, they paint those stories between he and the brothers as being like very black and white. And the fact of the matter is, it all makes sense to me. I mean, you know, he had to make some tough decisions and they had to make some tough decisions. And, you know, were they all made right? Probably not, but I don't think they were all made like just totally as malignant badness as you're saying, right? Right. No, I mean, people are complicated and processes are complicated, right? And yeah. then the, the humanness and all of it. And at the end of the day, if he had gone bankrupt, you know, then the brothers would have said, oh, we made <laughs> more than we ever thought. Um, but he didn't. And so then the story looks very different. So. Yeah. You know, when I graduated from college, I went to see a guy who I very much respected as a business person. And, he, and, you know, I was talking to him about the different choices and I had thought about getting an MBA and he said, work at McDonald's. And I, and I, I was a little like, well, what do you mean? And, and he's like, go work at McDonald's. Like, you want to really learn about business? Go work at McDonald's. It's the best place to learn. And I, I didn't do it, by the way. I didn't take his advice. But it stayed with me and I get it. Like, it, I mean, it makes sense. Does that advice make sense to you? So I referred to my time at McDonald's as the most expensive MBA ever. Um, because you really do learn about the operations and the nuts and bolts of selling and um, how complicated it is just to get a cheeseburger, right? Across a counter. And so you learn all of those very operational pieces, but then being a piece of McDonald's in this large um, corporate community, then you also have insights into supply chain and things that are very strategic in a much larger level than you typically would in a business just as a small business owner in your local community. So it's really, I think, the best of both worlds. So it's getting to see very functional, um, how do I manage, inspire, take care of um, my employees in my town, in my home, right? As well as what does it look like for marketing decisions, um, menu items, so things at a much higher view as well. It's, it's, a, it's a great place to, to learn about this. Yeah. You know, when I, when I read the bio, there, you know, there's some part of it that, you know, on, on, on its surface, you'd think, well, how could somebody who, you know, has a doctorate in science end up, you know, running McDonald's's? And um, I don't know how you say that word, McDonald's I, multiple McDonald's. Um, <laughs> and I get it. But on the other hand, I think, yeah, well, okay, that, you know, it's just as likely as an artist might run a great McDonald's as a scientist might run a great McDonald's. Like that to me is like business is that kind of a thing, you know, where you, you lots of different kinds of people could successfully run an organization and the richness of it all is definitely interesting, but I don't think of it as ironic. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and it's interesting because you know, people say, well, how could you? And initially it is, it's all, I think, stewardship, 
and how you choose to serve your community, right? And so the thing about public health that was attractive to me was it wasn't this kind of let me do um, this experiment on a flatworm because there may be some implications eventually in humans. It was this place where I could see immediately how research and work and science could make an impact. And running a McDonald's it is that. It is, you know, you get kids when they're 16, you have adults, sometimes adults who've had some challenges. Um, but that ability to help someone um, through, you know, seeing and working with them every day and all of the things that they taught and gave me, that back and forth and that um, helping one another is the same, right? It's just that, that my, my room or my um, mechanism to doing so changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to shift into this the, sort of this macro thing I opened with, which is just like COVID generally. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Before I do RP, if there's anything you want to talk about McDonald's, and we can go back to McDonald's later too, um, but I, I come on in the conversation, RP, and, and let's we can talk McDonald's, but I want to sort of talk about the, the big COVID thesis, and then I want to talk specifically what's going on in the world COVID-wise. Uh, Christine, it's nice to meet you. I uh, hope the audio is okay here. I can tell you I'm on a road trip with three boys, and I hear the word McDonald's about every 15 minutes. Can we stop at a, where's the next one uh Aren't they the best? Uh, and last night we had to stop at an Arby's and it was like tears that um, we couldn't find a McDonald's, but um, an American institution. Nice to meet you as well, Arby. Yeah. So, uh, Christine, I'm curious, this, I mean, this has been a phenomenon, right? A three month or more phenomenon in the United States. Can you just react to it on that very high level? Like, how has this been for you navigating all this, looking at all this? So I think um, initially I was very angry for a couple of weeks. I, I felt as if um, having been a part of the Centers for Disease Control and I was an EIS officer. So we did outbreak investigations and responded to public health emergencies. And so knowing what we can do um, and the talent that's there, for I couldn't understand what was happening, right? And, and so um, I was very frustrated by the response, uh, very candidly. And I think um, I, I just didn't get it, right? I just did not get how we weren't reacting differently and how the systems that we have in place weren't being used. And public health, normally there's this um, beautiful dance that occurs between the federal government and state departments of public health. And it's this back and forth. And I just, very removed from it though, but didn't see it. And I was like, okay, so why are the things that should be happening that we know how to do, why aren't they happening, right? And so for years, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States has been seen as the public health response, like period. And so to hear it silenced, um, it, it caused me great pain. And I think um, some of that frustration still lingers because I feel as if we've gotten to a point where we just accept that we're gonna have 200,000 Americans who have passed from this, right? Um, as if it had to be this way. And so that caused me um, great anger and grief 
um, and frustration at certain points. I, I think um, one thing that I did not see coming was this whole idea of business against public health and it being this tension and versus. And, and so um, having been in both worlds, I understand why they don't quite get one another, right? So, um, and I was, public health evolves. And so we make decisions, but there's an understanding that we're always accumulating more data, right? And so what we know, we're making a recommendation based on what we know today, but that may change tomorrow. It certainly may change a week from now as we gather more information, right? Because the more information we have, the better decision we can make, but things change. And so it's not that we didn't know what we were talking about, it's that we've gotten new information and we're making a different decision. And so I understand that that is hard where in business, oftentimes you make decisions and you ride it out, right? <laughs> and, and Or if you know something happened, you don't over communicate it, you fix it, right? And then you keep moving. But in public health, there's this need to constantly communicate because um, you need the data that cities, the towns, um, that information that needs to be accumulated. And so and I think making um, the environment of the United of our country safe for people to say, I have COVID, right? So just things like encouraging um, earlier in the, in the epidemic for people to say, or pandemic, really, people to say, okay, I have COVID. And if you were around me when I went to church <laughs> on, you know, the Sunday before it became public, if it... I want everyone to know because I think I remembered everybody I was in contact with, but I'm not sure. And we didn't even create an environment to help people do that. We got stuck in talking about privacy laws and restrictions and not just how do we take care of each other. And I just don't know how that happened. Yeah. You know, the way you were characterizing Ray Kroc, which is that there's nuance and there's there's layers to all these different people. And that and that's what we're talking about in that case. But that's true of organizations as well. And, and RP, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think the impression that, you know, the modern right has and it's maybe been true in the right for a long period of time and others, too, is that there's a general incompetence to government and therefore it shouldn't be listened to. And yet I know from people I trust, having not spent a lot of time there, that the, the qualities of people within places like the CDC is so high, and most of us don't know that. And the, the usefulness of something like the CDC is generally just not understood. It's not even misunderstood, it's just kind of not understood generally. And I'm, again, I'm generalizing, and I'm generalizing to an extent on the right, but I, I think I'm generalizing overall. But, but, I, but I don't, so this is, so as a business person, right? Um, if you run a company, you listen to what your marketing department tells you. You may not understand how GRPs are measured. <laughs> You should spend a certain amount on X number of GRPs, you do. And so why it is then that you can't trust that scientists and folks who have expertise um, in coming up with numbers in another way, in this other realm, might know what they're talking about frustrates me. But because business people always talk about show me the numbers, show me the data. Well, if someone shows you the numbers, even if you don't, understand how they came up with them. At some point you have to trust it, right? Um, but then ask and, and try to figure out which pieces of it you can understand. It's not um, it's foreign language. And, and I, let me say, let me acknowledge this frustration as well. Um, oftentimes those of us who do that work don't understand 
um, how things happen day to day in running businesses and what it takes to get the doors open and what it means to be um, responsible for those who work with us and their families, right? And so we oftentimes don't understand we need very discrete points of data to make very hard decisions around that. But there's got to be a place where we communicate and understand and trust one another. Um, yeah. And that, I, that has just made me woefully sad. Because we could be amazing if business and public health worked together. Like that, that <laughs> because that would be the most effective way of communicating in terms of plans um, around prevention, around even when people aren't feeling well, people go to work every day. And so what if we actually work together on this as opposed to just discounting one another? Yeah. How do you react to that, RP? Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating listening to you talk about your former employee, uh, Christine, you know, and you're a great example of the people I worked with at CDC. And there, there's three, three organizations in the U.S. government that I hold in very high esteem that most people usually don't. CDC, Public Health Service, and the Coast Guard. It's three organizations where people get government salaries, they put themselves at risk, uh, and they're simply trying to help other people. Now, we're, we fetishize the Delta Force, the SEALs, you know, um, the CIA, the FBI, those are all great organizations too. But CDC, Public Health Service, US Coast Guard, trying to help other people, doing it in harm's way, and again, getting paid very little for it. And I was heartbroken how poorly CDC did in the beginning and still in this epidemic. And um, I, I researched it, I talked to my friends there, and I, I basically, I think, you know, we're aligned. I think, you know, you get what you pay for. We've underfunded government for decades. Um, and, and so you have an organization that doesn't have the, fi the, the financing it needs. Um, it made a really serious misstep on testing right off the bat. And, and then I just, I can't imagine what it's like working there while you have a president making anti-factual, anti-science proclamations from the Oval Office. Now remember, these are career people who are very used to serving the president. They're, these are in the executive branch, obviously, um, and and the president is their ultimate boss. Period. Full stop. So it's got to be very, very hard. But the failures have been very serious. Talking to some friends who work there, there's a spirit of being disheartened. Um, yet they're still in the fight, and this is what they signed up to do. So um, I, I think it's amazing. And and you know your 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 further point about this moment we're in of anti-expertiseism. Uh, anti-facts, alternative facts, complexity mismatch. Um, it, it's, this is a really, really hard time to try to bring the nuance, uh, the sacrifice necessary to look at a disease and do it properly. You know, I was just sitting, well, I'll leave it there. I'll, just, just, I'll leave it there for now to reply to your comments on CDC. Um, yeah, it, it's, 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 it makes me very sad. They, they literally had errors on their website. Right. Like when in the history of that organization did they put information up on the website that they had to retract? Now, that's shocking to me. Same with WHO, of course, too. Do you do you guys think of that? I mean, Christine, one of the things about this show is that we we try not to delve into politics because we just don't want to be part of that noise. And, you know, sometimes it requires a certain amount of restraint. The dam burst a couple of weeks ago, um, largely because uh, the guy in charge sort of went too far and just, I'm speaking personally, I sort of went off on the guy. 
Um, so you have a little bit more license now to go off on the guy than we did before. And I, it really, we do that for having nothing to do with taking sizes, but just to create clarity for people so they can calmly think about what is a really challenging thing, that being COVID. Do you look at the, 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 your frustration? Does it come from the top? No, it does. It, it does. I, I think um, there are... So, so let me acknowledge. So working for the federal government was frustrating for me in lots of ways. So a lot of the things that RP talked about, right, being underfunded, and, um, there being a lack of appreciation for your work in this large um, institution. But the benefit of this large institution that is, you know, may not be that is institutional knowledge, right? And so to disregard the work and the, the sacrifice um, and the sheer brilliance that lives in those buildings and those people, um, I just had a problem with, and I couldn't understand. I mean, it would, it would not discount the knowledge, the ability of our armed forces in any way. Um, so I don't understand why you discount the scientists, the researchers, the practitioners um, that have been doing this work for so very long. I get you don't agree with it in the way in which to use the information. There may be some there. be a way to use that. And I think um, when people mess up, when institutions mess up, they're yours, right? And so the CDC's failures are all about but it's not, it is a government institution. And so as a leader, I think you have some responsibility to acknowledge and then fix, right? And, and so again, acknowledge and fix, which is why we often talk about how business leaders need to, to be, you know, in politics, right? Because we acknowledge problems, we fix it, and we strive to make things better, right? And that's what we want our politicians to do. So when you're given that opportunity, then you do and you lead and you expect that your leader has your back when you mess up um, yeah. and helps you fix it and, and grow forward and that it doesn't um, completely undermine all of your previous work. And, and I don't, so I, that, that piece of leadership, um, yeah. So um, can you guys, can either one of you guys or maybe both of you guys speculate what's going on? Why, why is there this disconnect? Is it, is it the individual? Well, I, I think Christine makes a huge point, right? And I haven't heard anyone say it's uh, Christine. The CDC is our organization. The president is our president. We've talked a lot about how we have to take leadership at the individual level, the family level, the business level. Regardless of if our government's leading or not, it's incumbent on all of us in the face of disease to do that. That's just a fact. We're not used to that. We're used to, maybe it's a nanny state, whatever it is. We're used to, in some instances, the government taking care of lots of things. And I think we've also become kind of dispossessed of what the government is. So as much as the CDC is our org, I think we're also learning the police departments are our orgs too. And they should do what the citizens want. We talked about cop, citizen on patrol. You know, CDC are citizens also that are serving us. So if they're failing, it's our fault, ultimately. I think that's an awesome point. What's happening? 
Um, there's a long history of presidents second guessing their kind of experts, right? There's a long history of, of Abraham Lincoln taking over some of the war plans during the Civil War because he thought his generals weren't aggressive enough. Um, there's a long history of Winston Churchill uh, being deferential to his leaders, but ultimately pushing him when he had to. This president has both been quoted as saying, um, I know more about Iraq than the generals do. And then I think I have a really great head for science. I understand this stuff. People say I could have been a doctor. And today he announced the disease is going away in, in the uh, completely flying in the face of every single piece of evidence. So we're just not used to having such a very, very different person in the White House than we've had through every single presidency I can think of, where the president is just abjectly wrong, um, abjectly obstinate, constantly randomizing with his tweets and his comments uh, on every topic, particularly on this one. So w when I say we're not used to it, why does that matter? It means if you're running the CDC or you're running any, any part of the US government, you don't have a playbook on what to do when your ultimate boss who can not only fire you, but worse, um, is countermanding, disregarding everything you're saying. So that's just got to be profoundly hard. <clears throat> and you need to find leaders then who can step up and try to fight against that. Every person who's tried to do that in this administration has been fired um, and embarrassed on the way out. So I don't actually know how you can be a hero for you know more than a day in this administration because you're gone as soon as you try to be. We've noticed that Fauci has not been at any of the public health briefings lately. Um, a friend of his says that's because he, he only wants to speak the truth and doesn't want to be there when lies are being said. Who knows? Um, but I, we also know, and Fauci said so himself, he wants to be part of this conversation. He wants to help lead. This is what he's trained for his whole life. Uh, I think those of us who have any insight into the man think he's highly competent. And so he has to measure politically how he behaves, what he does, so that he doesn't get kicked out of the game. You know, he's in there like many leaders trying to modify, moderate, and lead a president who's completely resistant to it. So it, this is, this is a, 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 a brand new puzzle um, and one that effectively we're failing at. And look, this is what our government's designed for. The government is designed in this instance for a very powerful executive. Uh, he has extraordinary authority and he's using it by omission. He's using it by not doing anything, by handing the leadership down to the states. And then, so by the way, today, that, today we're announcing governors handed down to the mayors, right? So I think people are doing this as if they're waving the flag and promoting federalism. You know, the president's saying, oh, it's a federalist system. I'm going to give it to the states. And now a number of governors saying, I'll give it to the mayors. Um, I don't think that's how this is supposed to work. That's a, to me, that's, a, um, that's throwing away your responsibilities. Sorry, Tom. No problem. Um, did you ever imagine, Christine, that epidemiology would play such a big role in our, you know, this historic moment. How much does this surprise you? Or did, did you think one day this is coming? No, I, I, I didn't see this coming. I, I thought that I would spend the rest of my life explaining to people what epidemiology is, right? So it's always, <laughs> yeah. so what is that again? And right. so the fact that I will never ever have to tell anyone what an epidemiologist does again um, is complete. I am shocked. I am saddened that we had to learn about it in this way. Um, but public health is one of those things where you don't know about it until something goes wrong, right? And so it has always been my concern that we'll keep defunding and defunding because we don't understand how it works. Um, and then 
by the time we realize, oops, we pushed it too far, it's because we are in the middle of a public health emergency. Now, did I think that the public health emergency would be this pandemic? Did I think that the U.S.'s um, response would be what it is, that the lives lost in this country would be what it is? No, not at all. Yeah. There's a long history of politics, um, both showing its best face during disease outbreaks and its worst face. Um, there's a number of wars that paused so children get, can get immunized. But of course, the history of HIV and political response is, you know, horrendous, horrendous through our country, obviously, uh, also throughout other infected nations. Um, I've worked with a number of leaders of states who are in denial about HIV. And I've seen um, diplomats get in shouting matches with South African diplomats, Swazi diplomats, Vatican diplomats about how they could deny what's going on with HIV. Um, so politics and, and disease often are pretty ugly bedfellows. And we're, I mean, look, would this be, would we see a very different response from Trump if this was the first year of his presidency and he wasn't so, you know, laser focused on getting reelected and so short sighted? Uh, maybe, maybe then he would say, look, I got a couple years to work it out, but this election is looming. Uh, and it, it's, it's clearly panicking him and he doesn't do well, period. He certainly doesn't do well under panic. So politics and disease can be very, very dangerous. And, um, and look, let's just remember, oh, three weeks ago, uh, we were talking about how we're gonna see a lot of um, second guessing. So three weeks ago or whatever it was when we came out of our quarantine, depending on where you were, we, we, we saw the economy come back. We had better economic unemployment numbers for non-African-Americans two weeks ago. Um, and, and I saw a lot of Wall Street people say, I can't believe we locked down. This was such a fiasco, such a charade, so unnecessary. This is silly. It's just a bad flu. And they were very happy to get back. The market showed that optimism. Well, look at where we are today. And we should probably touch on where we are today at some point, Tom. All the news today on the disease is bad. Um, even where I'm sitting in Wyoming, their, their caseload is going up. So it's, it's going up now in 23 states. It was 21 yesterday, 20 a few days before that. Um, we may not get that second big, huge spike. We should probably ask Christine about this, but I would love to have that conversation too. Yeah, well, let's do it. I mean, it's, um, you know, you taught me this RP and, and it, you know, it's powerful to hear you discuss it, Christine, because I probably fall into the camp of like suspicion of too big a government, right? That's just been who I've been historically. And over time, like anything else, the truth is in the nuance and that there's always, you know, there's layers to these things. These things are complicated. And I think more than anything else, I have a stronger appreciation for expertise than I did before. And I'm not going to say that I was like on the loony fringe of this way of thinking, but, you know, it, it made me wonder. And, and as a business person myself, you know, when I when you feel the crust form in a business, it's just a matter of time. Right. So I'm trained that way to be constantly wondering, like, keep it fresh, keep it fresh, keep it fresh. But here we are. And everything I've learned over the last several months, I mean, we keep using the, the analogy that remember the pool in the Ozarks where they showed all those people in the pool and half the country got so pissed at them for being so close to each other. Well, I see that down the street now. You know, I'm seeing this kind of behavior everywhere. And so mathematically, I think, OK, the numbers are going to go back up like it. it Unless somehow, like the sun is shining more brightly than it used to and, and the UV light's killing it in, in crazy ways, I don't know how it's not possible that we're going to have big growth. To what place, I don't know. But 
How do you react to that, what RP said, which is the trends are now moving in the direction we don't want them to move in? But we're doing all of the things that we know not to do, right? And so it is, um, and I think some of this is just our um, very American ability to say that that rule doesn't apply to me, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, and, and we're still a very, um, we are centered on the individual, right? And so it doesn't, we'll have a get together and it's family members. And so we know we're not supposed to have 10, but they're my family and I want to see them, right? Um, so that doesn't count. And so we have all of these exceptions <laughs> to rules in our head that we're applying to this situation. And it is, um, and then, you know, even my parents, so my, my parents are 77 and we all help take care of my 105 year old grandmother. So early on, we were very diligent. And my mother was talking about going to the gym. And I was like, why are you going to the gym? Why? And she's like, well, there were, I, I, why? And, and so, because everyone around you, your trainer is texting you, well, I've got an appointment open <laughs> if you want to come back. Um, once things open, we feel like, ooh, we're free and my rights are restored, let me celebrate by going and having a beer with 10 of my friends, right? In this place where there are lots of other people doing the same thing. So we're, so we're doing the things that we know we're not supposed to. And it, because it's hard to still be that person, right? It is hard to still be that pastor that says, okay, the state said we can reopen, but because of my congregation and them being seniors, um, I, I think it's best that we stay closed. And it gets harder and harder to do that. So we're going to see numbers grow as we, you know. Yeah. We're just Well, I think you put that very well. And I, cause I think it's, I think for a lot of us as Americans, we don't know that we're unique in the world with that sense of individualism. I also think we've been pretty good historically at, oh, here comes the ozone, well, that's going away. Uh, here comes the, this next one, here comes the Russians, here comes the nukes, here comes the financial crisis, and you know, three months later, oh, we're good again. You know, and, and, and I think people are doing that now. Like, oh, okay, that was a problem, but that was a problem that was before. Well, and the other thing is, I think though, that with COVID in particular, um, it's been easy to discount because it has affected more heavily populations that we don't have, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think the elderly. So the fact that it is um, running rampant in nursing homes, um, in institutions, in places where we've put people over there, yeah, um, means that we don't have to deal with it. We don't see it as personally. We see is okay. You're old. You were probably going to pass anyway, um, mm -hmm. and don't see the value that that our seniors bring to our villages. Um, and then the you know communities of color because as a person of color it felt as if you know if there was already some resistance to wearing masks and to being um, you know quarantined or self confined to your home that the moment that it was you know okay well it's primarily killing old people and people of color I'm good I need to get a haircut yeah we um you know part of what's hundred percent. It's a, it's killing people that are hidden away, uh, prisons, old folks' homes, all these things. We're not seeing who who they are and where they're dying. Is we haven't had the famous people dying yet, or at all. Hopefully, we won't. Um, but the other thing, Tom, I was just reflecting on what you're thinking. 
about American optimism. You know, we've had 75 years since the end of World War II where American optimism was absolutely the right bet every time. Every time. We came ripping out of the 08 crisis faster than anybody else. Uh, we won the Cold War, you know, you name it. We have not, even in the Iraq War, which is a total fiasco, probably cost us a trillion dollars and the numbers of people killed overseas, non-Americans, is in the hundreds of millions, like the ultimate cost of the American invasion of Iraq, the creation of all the devastation there. There was a lot of American soldiers dead, but we still didn't feel that impact here. It was felt in other places. Is this the first time? Well, and look, let's be honest. 300,000 people might die by October 1 from this disease in America. That's, that's not an unreasonable expectation of where this disease goes. And that's not really counting in what happens when flu hits and school starts. That's, that's a constant trend line of six, 700 dead per day till the end of, uh, end of September, right? 300,000. At that point, are we going to say, holy Moses, like we, we are now, uh, our 75-year win streak's over? Probably not. 300,000 dead. I think we're going to, again, they're largely hidden away. Um, and I think we're just going to just, you know, rough right through it. So I don't, you know, I, I think there's very reasonable people, you know, lar largely business people who have large debt-based businesses right now who would sit in this conversation and say, look, let's be honest, 300,000 people, a lot of them are old anyway. Um, uh, it, it's okay. We can't take the other negative impact of shutting down our economy. So I'm not sure if we're even realizing what a loss this is. I'm not sure we're realizing how negative this is. 300,000 people actually, you know, what's that statistic? One person's a tragedy, a million is a statistic. You know, that's, that's where we are right now. The economic toll is gonna to be extremely hard. Another study today said it'll be a $16 trillion economic toll versus a $10 trillion economic toll from 08, uh, meaning real, real fortunes lost, real businesses destroyed. But are we gonna look at this at the end and believe we lost, believe this was an, Amer an example of where America didn't come out on top? I don't know that we will. And like, meaning, will we get the lesson from this or not? And I'll, last sentence, I have already seen a reduction in enthusiasm from a variety of governments that I work with and businesses we work with about spending some money to implement you know, broad risk awareness, broad warning awareness systems. That was really hot a few weeks ago. Now they're kind of over it and they want to get back to opening the cafeteria in their building. So um, I don't know what, I don't know if, if this should be the big wake up call that we need more money in government, we need to not be anti-expertise, et cetera, or if we're just completely blind to this kind of thing. And this is sort of the story of the end of empire, just completely ignoring, being completely blind to um, caustic realities that you create. Can we also tie that? So, you know, you talked about people of color. Um, and for me, I, it, you know, the relationship between George Floyd and COVID is like this. And how, how can I define that scientifically? I don't think I can, but I think other people sort of understand generally. When I came back from my trip, so I'd done this trip where I went to the northern tip of the, of the Mississippi, drove up there, drove all the way down the Mississippi, drove all the way back through the south, and I was interviewing people along the way. And when I came home, I had this overwhelming sense of when I get back home, the minute I open my mouth, people aren't going to understand what I'm saying because what I saw was, you know, it was hopeful and beautiful in parts, but it was sad and depressing in, in many ways. And, and the sense I had was, and I'm gonna, this is too strong a word, but it's like a revolution's coming. That's what I felt. I, I thought this cannot stand. I had no idea that George Floyd was about to happen. I didn't know the revolution was gonna come in the form of race, but it did. And so 
you know, part of what we're talking about are sort of operational ideas and outcomes, but I think part of what we're talking about is like the love of each other, you know, and, and so when you outlined, you know, old folks' homes are surrounded by four walls and, um, and are marked by age. Race doesn't have those elements. I mean, it has geographic elements and other elements, but how do we deal with that? Like, how do, how do we think about what you just said? I mean, I think race is the ultimate of it, right? So it is the over here and the, the thing that I don't have to deal with. And, yeah. and then it is that um, those folks are over there because they are lazy, because they have not taken advantage um, of all that America is. And as opposed to um, thinking that we are as a part of America as anyone and that um, racism is as part of America as anything. And so um, it's been really interesting though as a Black American because for us, George Floyd, um, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, they are amongst a list of names that are too long for us to remember. And so the sadness, um, the hurt um, for, you know, me, the inability to watch. I mean, after Mont Aubrey, I was like, I, having grown up in the South, they were hunting. That is what hunting looks like when you are in a truck with your rifle gone. Um, and, and what that felt like to watch, and, and again, silence, right? And I'm sorry, so, what did you say? Again, what? Silence. There, there was not silence. that. There was not this great outpouring of watching um, a fellow human being being hunted. Um, and it was still, well, why was he there, right? And what was he doing? And what was yeah. um, all of the conversations that you only have when it is um, someone who is Black. And even Breonna Taylor, that somehow, because she was a Black woman, then she should have been expecting the police to storm in her house at any given moment and kill her. Right? Um, it is, so I am hopeful that real sustained change will come, but I am hesitantly hopeful. Yeah. Um, because a lot of it's, you know, can't, can become lip service. And I have, um, corporations have been busy posting on social media, Black Lives Matter, we stand with you. And then their employees are blowing up their comments. <laughs> Say, but my Black life has not mattered at work, right? Um, and what does your leadership team look like and why? And so it is, everyone is being um, so defensive in these moments that I wonder if we're still having the difficult conversations that will really spur change, right? And, and long-term change, not um, just for today, not just for that one donation, but okay, if you're gonna make a donation, is that commitment over the next 10, 20 years, right? Yeah. Not just what your leadership team looks like today or the one person who's black that you call to hurry up and put on your board, right? Um, what is the plan going forward so that um, you look up and there might be two or three, <laughs> you know, five or six years from now, and that your leadership team looks like your customer base. Um. Is that, so I, if I have a hope, 
and people have heard me say this before, but you haven't. So, um, you know, COVID was a prelude to an opportunity. That's my hope. Okay, and I don't, I don't wish ill health on anybody. And there's so much that come, gets in the way of what I'm saying, and I appreciate that. But I can speak personally and say, like, this has been such a profound moment in my life in so, on so many levels, which has put me in a position to feel more useful to others. Okay, that's just how I feel. I'm just speaking as one individual. And I know I'm not alone because I talk to people about this thing. But my fear is that I'm going to end up, like most of us, this is cynical, which is too busy and not having taken a, an opportunity to do something to not let that, because you're right, you, you corrected me in a certain way and you said, yeah, it's just like an old, folk home, old folks home. It is just like an old folks home. I know you're right. The challenge I have is like, how can I do something tomorrow, today, to not let that opportunity just go away? And I've been thinking a lot about it and having conversations about it. Um, and I know others have as well. And I, you're not, I, I, again, I don't expect you to give me like the eureka right now, but I am curious how you would react to what I'm saying. And, and I do think, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm unique in my hope that, come on, you know, from the time I was, I watched Roots on TV in 1970, whatever, I don't, I wish I were part of something that was going further than it has. So, um, there have been a couple of suggestions that I have made when people have wanted to have these conversations with me. Um, so one is, what have, what is your self-reflection shown, right? And am I willing to, to hear um, others' viewpoints when it makes me uncomfortable? And so do I want to talk about race because I want to say, these are my experiences with African-Americans? Am I willing to hear how African-Americans experience me? And, and that is difficult. And that requires sitting and hearing maybe some things that um, are going to be difficult, right? But if that's how people have been experiencing you, then it already is, right? It doesn't become any worse because you now know it. Um, it gives you an opportunity to grow and to move forward in it. So that's been one, is just being very self-reflective. I think seeking learning in the same way that we do sports, that we do COVID, that we do um, anything else. And so in particular, cause I, you know, in organizations with men, when you're in college football and you want to learn about a team, you look at information from different sources, right? You don't expect to pick up the, the phone and call the coach <laughs> and ask about the defense, right? You read it from those who are fans. You hear information and seek information from experts, from people who aren't fans, who are fans of your particular team, but all, you know, you want a 360 view, right? Um, so I think doing that research and work, but the easiest thing is picking something that is easy for you to do. There are lots of things um, that we all have, um, for lack of a word, dominion over, right? Decisions that we make every day. And so it's stopping to say, okay, now that I'm thinking about things differently, now that I'm aware of maybe some blind spots I've had, what decisions can I make differently? Right. And so people talk about with their companies and I'm like, okay, so if you really believe 
that your company is as equitable as you say it is, then check. Just check, right? Is pay equitable, right? Have somebody go and look and see. If it is, great. Then there's something else you probably need to look at. But let's just start looking and making sure um, instead of becoming so like, I've been doing the right thing. Well, all of us have room to improve, right? That, that's what business is. That, that's the other part, right? So you're never satisfied with 25% market share. You want to grow it to 30 <laughs> in the next, you know, five years, 10 years. So we set long-term goals around that. And so with the things that I can control, um, how do I set long-term goals in this area as well? And where do I need to keep a record of them so that I'm held to them? Because you do get busy and you are onto something else. But in this moment, if people are fundamentally dedicated to making a difference on this, then making some long-term commitments and decisions now. And again, business owners, especially private companies, people put their cousin's husband on the board. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> All day. Right? Yeah. You could put someone else on the board because they bring a different perspective and have different experiences. Right? And so your cousin's husband, in some ways, is on there because of a title, but his title does not equal his qualification. Right? And so in this instance, it, it may not either. Um, but just to think about things differently. And that, that whole conversation about, you know, what it requires for folks of color to be considered qualified is another thing. And the, the supposition and the fact that I even have to have that conversation is offensive, right? Because no one else questions um, whether the cousin's husband is qualified, but I have to be justified. And, and that is, um, you know, someone who, very privileged, very fortunate to have a doctorate from Harvard, right? But that ends up being why people can validate my presence in a room. Yeah. Right? Well, Christine's here, she's gotta be smart, she got Dr. Mark. If I were a white male, there'd be no need to qualify. It would simply be, this is Christine. Yeah. So there's, there's yeah, awareness. Can, Sorry, Tom, go ahead. You know, you go. I, I, I'm just. I'm, I'm, I'm enraptured by this. And I'm just thinking about, Christine, how you're talking about these sort of waves of awareness, right? So we've talked earlier about how Corona made us more aware that our government failed us, um, that it's our CDC, that it's our presidency. Um, we're seeing, you know, efforts to take over our police departments, change them in a way that I think a lot of us kind of are waking up to realizing they should be changed. Um, so that's an awareness thing. I, the George Floyd awareness and, I, you know, this is sort of the point I want to get to is I, I want to be careful how I say this because it's so it's such a difficult, uncomfortable conversation. But would it be fair to say that one of the most powerful things about the slow motion, horrendous murder of George Floyd was it made white people more aware of what African-Americans have been well aware of for a long time? Right. Like we saw that it was inarguably a slow, slow motion murder. And a lot of white Americans maybe now are more aware of this. And so if you look at the protests, they're, they're very much multiracial. They're very much multi-age. Um, and so, again, you have this awareness. And so, you know, and some of these concrete changes we're talking about, police departments taking down statues, um, more board seats for, for broader representation, those are all positive things. Um, and, but I, I really like your, your comment about how we have to sort of check ourselves and figure out what it is we're doing. I just wonder, I still feel like 
it, it, it does it have to what so that those are boards those are businesses those are but for the vast majority of Americans who don't run businesses don't sit on boards um, is there any I, I, you know this is not to put you on the spot I'm not sure there's an answer but how does that part of America um, become more aware of this reality in which we've been this persistent durable reality this country has been in for you know 400 years and begin to make changes at a personal level uh, it, and, and I wonder if one of the answers is hard conversations uncomfortable conversations um, I don't know but it feels like we, we have some institutional ideas that matter we feel like I feel like we have business ideas that matter I feel like we have government ideas that matter I feel, I feel like we're waking up we thankfully have an election coming up or perhaps more people will get out and vote and realize they have to have their own president in power um, but I, I don't is there any set of steps that individuals can take to to take the scales off their eyes and be more aware of what's going on in this country so i, I think it is again always stopping and that self-reflection right but it is also the, the things that you have influence over so we all make decisions every day um and if it is whose house um i let my children go play with if it is speaking up when I'm in the restaurant or in a store and I see something happen that isn't quite right. Um, we all, so that we all have decisions that we make every day. And so it is, how am I going to decide differently based on this new perspective? And, and based on this awareness that I maybe have been just walking off from some things before. When my children say something, when my sibling says something, right? When, um, I recommend someone, right? So if I recommend one of my coworkers um, for a promotion, right? Or I comment on my boss, am I being equitable in those comments? Am I, all, we all make lots of what we think to be small decisions that impact others every day. And so how do we use this new knowledge to do that? Do I put on a mask for COVID so that I don't? <laughs> impact the community of color that's in my neighborhood. So even if I don't believe that I really should have to, and it's, it, we're in the South, it is hot. It is hot to wear a mask, right? But if I'm willing to demonstrate, if I'm willing to march, and I know that COVID impacts communities of color at a greater rate, am I willing to put on a mask to protect them? Right? So th there are lots of decisions that we can all make. It's just stopping to think about how we do so and being more thoughtful and not running from the uncomfortable conversations. You know, I'm gonna add one thought to that. Um, and thanks for responding. I mean, it's not your responsibility. Yeah, thank you for making that point, Tom. I, I, I don't, it's not your job nor your responsibility. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but I, 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 I learned a lot, thank you. No, and there are lots of black folks who would disagree with me, right? <laughs> so I'm not. <laughs> Right, so I am not some great <laughs> spokesperson. I'm just glad that you all are letting me share um, my thoughts. And, and I'm comfortable enough when I don't feel like talking about stuff. I'm like, look, I'm tired. Yeah. I, you know, um, well, so my, my strategy at the moment, this is my personal strategy. One of you brought it up, which is, you know, and we, we interviewed a guy uh, last week named Neil Phillips who talked about that. Like, you got to get comfortable in the uncomfortable period. And if it's not uncomfortable, you're probably wasting your time a little bit. So just go in there and do your best. Well, the, my takeaway is 
um, priority. That the priority of, you know, like many of us, I've seen good and bad in my life. I've seen tragedy and I've seen beauty, sometimes very close to each other. Um, I do know you're not going to take it with you. You're not. You're not taking it with you, man. You're going, you're going out in a, in a box like everybody else and you're going to love the people around you or you're not. Now, I don't practice that every day. I get greedy. I, do, I get impatient. I get selfish. I do lots of things. But I want to live in a culture that achieves something more than zeros and ones and money. I'm not against it. I'm not against it. But it's like, let's win in another way. Like, let's, ha let's prioritize something. And so does that mean, like, you know, I'm not going to get into the debates over some of the miscellaneous? Yeah, that's what it means. Well, I was going to say, though, because it's kind of like dating, right? So it's all good and butterflies and you're excited and <laughs> by it initially, right? But I think the hard part is how do I love when you're showing back to me the ugly parts of myself? Yeah, well, that's a powerful point. You know, I've been wrong. I will continue to be wrong. You know, initially... I was like, well, maybe we can get COVID under control. Didn't think that, you know, was hopeful and optimistic. And then, no. Um, so I have been wrong. I, I hope that some beautiful, wonderful things grow out of all of this. Um, I don't know what our new normal is going to look like in both addressing um, racism and um, COVID, but I am hopeful for both. And that goes back to that American optimism, right, that you talked about and that um, we, we'll see. I don't, I don't know. But if you'd ever told me that any of this would have been the last three months, I don't know. Okay, I'll, I'll do it right now. So Christine, thank you for your time. And also thank, thank you for your generosity on sort of a range of conversation. I love your story. And